welcome to Loud and Clear, a podcast dedicated to amplifying the voices of women in music. I'm your host, Olivia Adams, and I'm delighted to introduce you to our guest today, Malika Fitzhugh. Mel is a Boston area composer and musician who enjoys playing and composing new music for historical instruments. A native of Stafford, Virginia, Malika Fitzhugh graduated from Harvard Radcliffe with a music theory and composition degree and has their master's uh, from the Longy School of Bard College in composition and has also studied conducting and composition. Mel's compositions have been commissioned by John Tyson, Catherine Rubin, John and Maria Capello, Laura and Jeffrey Shamu, and the Kulisma Consort. Mel's honors include the 2021 Bang on a Can Fellowship, 2020 winner of the Patsy Lou Prize for the International Association of Women in Music, Search for New Music, the composer in residence of the Women Composers Festival of Hartford, the winner of the Longy Orchestral Composition Competition, and performances with the Radcliffe Choral Society, Choral Allegro, and the Harvard Wind Ensemble, the Village Circle Band. The artist who has composed music for film and stage was a member of Just In Time Composers and Players, and is currently a member of World Slash Early Music Ensemble Urban Myth and Early Music Ensemble Kulisma Consort. Mel, it is so great to have you join us. How are you doing today? I am well. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I... I'm so delighted to get to talk with you again. It's been a while since we've actually been able to talk because we met right before the pandemic hit. Yeah. <laughs> so how has how have you fared in the pandemic and um, being a musician? Because it has been it's been a tough go and it's also been a really big learning curve um, for all of the new things that musicians have had to learn to do to adapt in order to stay in their field. Well, it's funny because I have almost had no gigs performing. Mm -hmm. um, I used to perform out with several different bands. So I was having gigs at least three or four times a month before. Um, but that all, whoosh. It's all gone. <laughs> stopped. <laughs> um, and hasn't really gotten back. Um, I have had a couple of couple of gigs outdoors with a couple of you know rock bands and such um i did an outdoor a couple of uh, outdoor solo guitar gigs the past couple of years but oh and i also i had a piece premiered back in may with the boston recorder orchestra <laughs> so i played with them and perform and performed my piece it's sort of coming back a little bit mm -hmm. you know it's in still 22 yeah. Do you find that we're still kind of navigating what the new normal is going to look like? Absolutely. I think the issue is, especially in Boston, especially with um, more popular music like rock bands and such, even before the pandemic, their venues were closing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it was getting harder and harder to find places to, to, to perform. Um, and so even more venues failed to uh, survive the pandemic mm -hmm. and ones that did survive as a restaurant or whatever, they got rid of their, in an effort to have more space, to have more distance between tables, they got rid of their stages or whatever, you know, people were performing. So of course, it's a thing. I think that the new normal 
is gonna be what it is and we'll see we'll see what that happens to look like but yeah Absolutely. Yeah, it's still I think it's still evolving in the various stages of the pandemic. I don't necessarily want to talk about the pandemic in the past tense because I still think we're still navigating that. Absolutely. Um, so, Mel, I met you originally as a composer. You were premiering some compositions. And and so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your composition journey. Um, could you tell us about that and what let you? led you down the path of being a musician and a composer? Excellent question. Uh, well, I started off in music when I was around five. I was begging my grandmother and my mother for a guitar because I wanted to be just like Chuck Berry and Elvis <laughs> Presley. And then went and took classical guitar lessons for three years. I never actually did learn any. Chuck Berry or Elvis Presley in my lessons. Learned some Schubert, Schumann, learned uh, Bartok. This was in the late 70s. This was like in 77. And fingerstyle guitar was very popular. Jerry Snyder had this collection of, of uh, classical music for, for fingerstyle guitar. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, had a couple of books of Bach, Mozart, Schumann, Bartok. Um, Grieg, <laughs> so <laughs> I learned a lot of classical. And then finally, I quit in a huff because I was convinced the guitar was keeping me from having friends. Turns out I just don't like people. <laughs> uh, when I was in fifth grade, I took up the viola and was in orchestra and did have some friends. Just, I didn't <laughs> really get on with people too terribly well, but I had some cellists and other violists who were who were pretty good friends throughout middle and high school and so I played viola had a good time with that uh got into high school was recruited by the band director <laughs> because he was desperate for someone to play timpani who could actually <laughs> hear notes because apparently in Stafford public schools they didn't teach any of the percussionists like they taught them great snare skills didn't teach them how to differentiate between a C and a B. So I got I got to join the band and play, you know, played timpani in the concert band and, you know, did quads and snare and such in the um in the marching band. Amazing. But did make more friends and I got to learn all their instruments. So I had a really good friend who's a flute player. She taught me to play flute. And then I sort of sidled up to an oboe player. <laughs> and so I just had a grand time learning every instrument that I could get my hands on. And that's when I started in somewhat in middle school. I, I made some arrangements of like the, um, <clears throat> the young and the restless theme for my middle school orchestra. Mrs. Ross actually, you know, <laughs> had us played in class and everything and that was really awesome and then I wrote some original stuff in high school and between Mrs. Ross and Mr. Easley the band teacher like they actually let they, you know got people together and we played things that I was writing and it was great fun so I had this plan in high school that I was going to go to college be a double major in classics and music. So I also loved Latin. My Latin teacher, Mrs. Pomfrey, was just amazing. And so I was like, this is it. 
Latin and music. And then I'm going to go to law school and do contract law for the National Symphony. Wow. So I was like, that was my plan. <laughs> uh, got to college, went to Harvard. Um, it was academically soul destroying. Mm. Um, but I met a lot of really amazing people like Tom Everett and um, Beverly Taylor. It, Beverly Taylor was the director of the Radical Choral Society that I sang with. And Tom Everett was the director of band, so I was in the marching band and I was in the wind ensemble. And again, they were really amazingly supportive. Mm -hmm. I wrote a piece for wind ensemble and women's chorus that has never been performed again, but they were very supportive of putting on a performance of it. And that was really amazing. But academically, at the time, in the early 90s, Harvard's music department was very focused on elderly and dead Germans. My senior year, uh, or what would have been my senior year if I hadn't taken a year off in the middle of my undergrad, um, they ha actually hired Kay Kaufman Chalamet. She's an amazing ethnomusicologist, mm -hmm. and she had written a lot about um, women in music or women's music in like the Middle East and some really interesting scholarship that was neither dead German or male. Certainly. <laughs> that was a that was a big change. And she, I think, sometime after I did graduate, she actually became the head of the department for a while. So Amazing. things are, I'm sure, very different than they were. It was it was very soul destroying to be a person of color mm. in that department. It was very soul destroying to be uh, female bodied in that department. Yeah. And it was also soul destroying to have interests outside of, like I said, dead and elderly Germans. Yeah. You know, I went in having a, not a great love, but I enjoyed listening to Android Weber. You know, mm -hmm. I loved Starlight, Starlight Express is one of my favorite musicals. Uh, but I got, I was openly mocked <laughs> for not thinking that Android Weber was complete trash um, in class by a professor. So, oh my goodness. Yeah, that was not good. Um, I did, I had a friend in the department who was in fact a Caucasian male who was also openly mocked for the fact that he liked like ministry and testament and, you know, like heavy metal, industrial kinds of things. And I went to concerts with him and we had great fun, but <laughs> neither of us had a good time in class. It uh, wasn't considered serious music, whereas now most most music departments have a pop music and or a rock music, you know, studies section. Right. Um, yeah. I think there was one class on jazz that was definitely looked down on by the rest of the department. Harvard was great in a lot of ways, but and like I said, there were people in the music department who were very supportive and who were very wonderful. But the the upper echelons of the department and what they permitted to have happen in classrooms, openly mocking people for their interests, was not cool. As a you know, eighteen, nineteen, twenty year old, I I sort of shrank into myself rather than going, Hey, you are not allowed to do that. But I survived. 
I did survive the department, then went directly in into IT. I worked as a systems administrator and a network administrator for like 15 years after graduating, but continued playing in, in ensembles like Urban Myth, which sort of, when I first joined, was mixing Renaissance music and early like historical instruments like the sham and kirtle and mm -hmm. recorders with African percussion, like the djembe, ashiko, mm -hmm. um, junjun, kinds of things, sometimes Middle Eastern stuff like the, the dumbek together and playing in pagan festivals. <laughs> Would Neat. be great fun. <laughs> um, you know, I so re found my love of the recorder through Urban Myth because, you know, I played it in third grade. Right. Like most everybody did in the U.S. I don't know if you do in Canada. Do you yes, they definitely do. I don't know if it's like third grade, but yeah, the recorder is a is the common instrument to learn. Well, color me surprised when I found that there's more sizes than just the soprano recorder. <laughs> and I gravitated to the bass recorder because I loved how deep and round the sound was. And let's face it, the soprano is a little high and squeaky, a little bit of a just flashbacks a to um, third grade of nobody being able to play the same. Everyone's playing the same fingering. Nobody's playing the same note. Exactly. <laughs> But, you know, having it in the hands of professionals, of people who studied the instrument, my friend um, Kathy Rubin, who's an attorney by day, but an amazing flute player and recorder player, I wouldn't say by night, by evening, <laughs> on the weekend. So she taught me, like, all this stuff about recorder, and I had such fun. And then, you know, through playing at different pagan festivals and, and different stuff around, uh, the country and around the, uh, we actually we played in Canada on the um, Niagara Escarpment. We played a oh, pagan cool. festival. So meeting her, I met some other people who were in the early music scene at Boston. And um, one of them, Lisa Gay, was forming the Quilisma Consort, which is mostly medieval, some Renaissance music. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when the third member was a trio, Carolyn could get it past her. We did some early Baroque music. <laughs> But it was very much like very uh, stricter, which reminded me more of my studies in in um, in college and as undergrad. Um, so I got to go back, to, went back to Harvard for the first time, even though I'd been living down the street from in, in for you know twenty years. Mm -hmm. um, went back to the libraries and I was like, you know, looking at facsimiles of of different manuscripts like the the Luca Codex um, and not hating being in the building. <laughs> but then I was really finding joy in music research again and just having a grand time relearning because I learned a lot of this stuff when I was an undergrad, but then I put it out of my mind when I graduated because I'm like, <laughs> I'm never doing grad school. So I gave up, gave up that entire idea of going to, to law school. and. <laughs> And everything because I just you know found a job uh, working at biotech or whatever right. you know, doing the systems administration which was great fun don't get me wrong loved you know writing uh, web scripts and doing back-end programming to, for web pages so that they could you know collect and and display data and that was it was a good time but I continued with the with the music and got back into it and and everything and then I was in a car accident 
coming back from a gig in New Hampshire where a moose landed on the head of, on the roof of the car. Oh my goodness. That was no fun. Um, so I started having some memory problems, so I couldn't do IT anymore. So I went back to school, went back and did my master's degree in music. So I didn't have to remember anything necessarily to write music. And so that's how I got to be where I am today. Did my master's degree, studied with uh, John Morrison at Longy, the Longy School of Music of Bard College. The other amazing thing about it was when I went there for like, I don't know, for the year before and I think a year after, <laughs> they had made the decision to merge the early music department and the new music department into one department, historical and theoretical studies. <laughs> Interesting. Which I was like, what? <laughs> I had been studying, you know, on my own uh -huh. um, as, you know, as part of Coolisma and getting repertoire for Coolisma consort, you know, diving into you know, random uh, codex, you know, facsimile uh, of um, old music from like the, you know, medieval period, the 1300s, like I said, the Ars Subtilier, which is my favorite period of music <laughs> and such. And playing, you know, I had friends who were very deeply involved with the Boston Early Music Festival. I had access to instruments and players of instruments of historical right so i'm curious mel is this where you because one of your series which i find so um interesting and and so entertaining as well to listen to is you have this series of compositions called new music for old instruments is that where that sort of stemmed out of oh yeah uh because it started with you know with the coolisma consort and the urban myth playing music that i wrote on historical instruments. And I just love the sound of new music on historical instruments. Because um, especially like Renaissance styled recorders are not, they're not tuned equal temperament. So where all the half steps are the exact same size like, a, like on a piano, mm -hmm. um, it's tuned in mean tone. So fifths are bigger than they are on a piano. Right. And they ring more. It just sounds like this, they lock into place in a way that I can't quite describe. The little ratio of, of the tones to each other is different than, than what you get on a piano. And it just sounds so amazingly crisp. It just, it, it has a different taste to it, uh, as I like to say to people. It um, tastes fresher and crisper <laughs> somehow, the, the fifths in mean tone than, than the fifths in equal temperament, which is most of what I've done my entire life, you know, from guitar through viola in orchestra through, but when I, when I started playing recorders, especially when I started playing in the Quasmans consort, which was really concerned with specific tuning issues, and we all got matched instruments, you know, from a single maker to be able to blend even mm -hmm. better, it, it's introduced me to this notion that, oh, not all tuning is the same. No. Um, which is something I'd heard about in classes, but never really experienced as an undergrad. But mm -hmm. to have these instruments that were, you know, tuned for mean tone or just intonation and hearing what a difference it is compared to equal temperament, hearing instruments that are tuned in 
415 Baroque tuning with guts, well, faux gut. Nobody actually, I don't think anybody's actually making <laughs> No one's using gut, but <laughs> sheep intestines anymore. But, you know, nylon to, or some kind of nylonish kind of thing to imitate that same quality of strings on a bass viola da gamba tuned in 415 and how different that sounds from a modern cello tuned in 440. It's mm-hmm. playing the, the same notes, air quote same notes, um, but it just sounds so much more chocolatey kind of. Oh, I like, love that descriptor. The sound is rounder, it just it's richer, it's chocolatier. That's all I can say. I love that. I think this, uh, your description of these instruments and their tunings and and how you like to play with that in your composition leads really great into my next question. And that is, can you let us into your compositional journey a little bit and describe how you begin a new commission? Well, generally, um, it depends on, well, it, it depends on the instrument that I'm composing for. So if it's not an instrument um, that I'm very familiar with. I'll try to get my hands on it and start playing it. Like right now, I am doing a commission for French horn, which I haven't touched the French horn since I, my friend Deb let me play hers in high school. So, <laughs> so it's been a while. <laughs> it's been a while, and I've always thought the French horn was sort of, uh, you know, an example of sorcery. Ever since the day that she played an entire one octave chromatic scale up and back without touching a single key, just with her lip alone, played a fully chromatic scale. And I'm like, that's not the way instruments should work. This is sorcery. But yeah, so I'm I'm working on a a new piece now and I've I've been playing around with uh, experimenting with the French horn. I borrowed one from a friend of mine who owns a music store familiarizing myself with the sounds of it, listening to some recordings of, of things, uh, looking at what's in the literature and what might be possible for in being in the literature. And then I'll just start writing some things. If it's, a, it's, if it's for an instrument or an ensemble that I'm fairly familiar with, then I usually start either on the guitar or I have a recorder. A, I have one of those plastics um Soprano recorders in my backpack at all times. Just so you're on the ready. I love that. (laughs) Yeah, if I have something, because I don't have perfect pitch. So if I think of a melody in my head, I couldn't tell you what notes are being played. Right. Um, So I just get out my recorder and I'll just tune until I find the right notes. And then I can write them down. I always have a little battered notebook in my pocket. I remember the day that... um, I got my first paycheck after graduating from college and I went out and I got this $200 cord metronome tuner combination and I thought it was just the best thing. I took that thing everywhere. It was always in my backpack. I haven't carried it in my backpack in in like 10 years now though because uh, I got a Blackberry. Yeah, I was going to say because our phones can do it. Yeah, so you can, but I still have that cork. <laughs> I love it. I lo- it's just, a, it's a symbol, right? Yeah, and it's just a thing. So many things, technology has changed so much. Like the fact that it was $200 and I thought that was a bargain <laughs> 20 some years ago, almost 30 years ago. And now you can get those two apps on your phone for 
well, most metronome apps are free. Um, I have ClearTune, which cost me, I think, $4.99, and that was considered expensive. Right. $4.99. I think of the ability that that has granted us as as musicians to be able to store, you know, what we need. I mean, not just for musicians, but I'm thinking in the musical context, right, mm -hmm. is we no longer have to rely on paper storage or large machines to store our music. Yeah. But it can all just live in the cloud. It can live yeah. in the cloud. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I remember with Urban Myth, we went into a studio. We went to Blue Jay Studio, I think, out in Carlisle, Mass. And it cost thousands of dollars to, because they had all this really great equipment for, the, for you know, 1997. And a you know, big board for recording. Yeah, and it cost thousands and thousands of dollars. Now you can get away with a few hundred dollars, like a decent, a decent mic will put you back a couple hundred dollars. You can get a couple hundred dollars and, you know, a, uh, I don't even know what that box is called that I have. I have one of these M audio boxes that connects the mic into my computer. Right. And then spend a couple hundred dollars on logic and I can record myself in my living room. If I can find a time when there's not, you know, large star market trucks going down the street. So along the idea of, um, you know, composing and writing and recording, do you have compositional practices that keep you grounded as a musician and as a composer? Like, do you have rituals around what you're composing or not so much? Not so much that I can think of offhand. I was trying to think if I did have any, I mean, other than always having, you know, something available, if I get an idea to jot it down. Other than that, like, uh, it's, it's totally ADD world. So I, I use Lily Pond to make all my scores, right? right. Because it is open source. <laughs> it is created by people all over the world contribute to it. And so therefore, it is free to use. I use this other app called Frescobaldi, which just has a way of organizing it so that there's one part of the window that I type in to put all the lily pond code in, and then it compiles and it shows up in an, another part of the window, the, the actual PDF. I took out a loan <laughs> to, to buy my first computer ever and uh, sophomore year and bought Finale then and just had to figure it out. Figure it out on your own. Figure it out on your own. My goodness. Just go. But then, back then, there was this amazing bit of software, like Sibelius and Finale were duking it out, I guess, on the national and <laughs> international stage. But locally, to Boston, there was this Mark of the Unicorn, Composer's Mosaic was what it was Composer's called. Composer's Mosaic. Oh, interesting. And I loved it. It was so much more intuitive than either Sibelius or Finale. But alas, the Mark of the Unicorn... They stopped doing updates for Composer's Mosaic like 20 years ago. I don't even know if they still exist doing digital performa or not. I got away from Finale. When I, when I got out of academia, I could no longer afford Finale because right. it's so it expensive. Thousand, it was like a thousand dollars or 800 and some dollars 
for professional, um, you know, engraving 300 yeah. and something for academic. And then updates were for academic were like a hundred dollars each. And it was like $500 each for professional. I was like, I, I can't, I can't even with you finale. And Sibelius <laughs> was no better. Yeah. So I discovered Lily Pond and never looked back. That's so great. I'm glad that you found one that that works so well for you. Now, I've got one more question for you that I'll ask, and then I've got some rapid fire questions that I'm asking all of our guests this season. Um, So is that all right with you? Sure. What are you working on right now? And can you tell us about it? Or do you keep most of your projects under wraps? Um, No, I I freely talk about what I'm working on. Um, I mentioned that I'm working on a commission for horn and piano that a woman, Margaret McGillivray, I think she's in the DC area. Um, She, oh, she has to be at the DC area. She teaches at the Duke Ellington School for the Arts. Um, She's looking for pieces for her horn studio. So um, advanced horn players, but teenagers. Mm -hmm. She's looking for more repertoire for them. So uh, I'm writing a piece. I'm one of like five or eight composers. That's fantastic. For this, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty exciting. So that'll be cool. So that is, got to do that by the end of the summer. But I'm also currently working on a piece for the Craft Ensemble. In two weeks, I'm going to be going on a retreat with them in New Hampshire. We're cool. going to Avalok Farms and just gonna hunker down and they're gonna work on a lot of their repertoire that they do because I. I'm not sure that they all live in Massachusetts at the time, at this moment, but they usually get together and, you know, work on all their repertoire and stuff. But they have agreed to play a couple of pieces by me. I'm very excited. So I'm working on a piece for harpsichord and string quartet. Oh, that sounds great. Avalok Farms. So I'm very excited about that. But that's two weeks, so I have to finish that this week. <laughs> up to them. And I'm also working on a, well, I was uh, a friend of mine that I, I made, well, you might have met him too at um, either the Music by Women Festival in Mississippi or at um, the Hartford um, Composers, Women's Composers Festival, Nathaniel Gorick. He's, he's a percussionist that performed at both of those. Okay, yes, times. I remember, I remember performing, I don't think I ever got to chat with him, but yes. But you might recall that he performed. Yes. Um, he asked two years ago, at the beginning of the pandemic, he asked me to write a piece for Xylophone, which doesn't get a lot of love lately. You know, most people right. write for Marimba, but he wanted a piece for Xylophone and either fixed media or live electronics. I think I'm going to go for fixed media. Oh, cool. But I started that in 2020, got completely like, Ugh, I have to take to my fainting couch because 2020 was such a oh, it was a year it was a year um and never got a rep back around to it and he was like hey <laughs> early in june was like hey how about that piece still interested in writing yes i am because <laughs> I, I had i'd gone as far as far as i'd gotten a friend of mine who's a voice actor well he's an actor actor but I gotten him to record his really deep bass voice. I got him to record snippets of um, Greek and Latin that I was going to weave together as part of the fixed media. T- I, I'd gotten that done in, in the summer of, of 2020. 2020. I just ran out of 
energy around of steam. <laughs> yeah. Just because it's like, ugh, he's, you know, he's because he was planning. The original idea was that I was gonna have it done by October because he was gonna perform it in February. But then he was like, oh, it doesn't look like that February performance is gonna happen. <laughs> like, I don't think any performance is happening ever again. <laughs> it felt like that for sure. Yeah, but uh, I guess now he's uh getting things going and getting getting performances lined up, which I'm just thrilled for. So I'm working on that. And then later this, uh, for December 1st deadline, I have, I'm working on a piece um, setting Phyllis Wheatley. Phyllis Wheatley, who I'd never heard of before, two years ago, a friend of mine, she's doing uh, her doctorate in English at Brandeis. Um, Jenny Factor, amazing poet, who I've set some of her work before, but she has been researching Phyllis Wheatley for the past couple of years. And now I'm for an, uh, actually an ensemble that's tangentially related to Brandeis. I'm setting a piece of, her, uh, setting a poem of hers for SATV choir, Baroque flute, Fiorbo, and percussion, I think. Oh, Jula de Gamba and percussion. Yeah. What a great, um, what a great mix of instruments that you're composing for. I love it. It must, um, well, it's, that goes back to my love of historical, historical instruments. So on the podcast, at least in this season, I'm asking each artist the same series of rapid fire questions. Okay. So just go with your gut instinct. There are no right or wrong answers. Um, number one, can you point to a moment when you knew you wanted to be a composer? I think it was in, might be in middle school when I wrote a piece and my my middle school teacher actually let my string orchestra play it in class. That was pretty cool. What a foundational moment. That is so, you got to love teachers like that. You'll never forget teachers like that. Absolutely not. Um, favorite piece or song to perform? Well, that depends on the instrument. Fair. Um, <laughs> So for guitar, like when I was really like five, five years old, I learned this piece, Greeting to Gade or Greeting to Gade, G-A-D-E by Schumann. Okay. Which I loved. Um, I taught myself painstakingly over the course of years because I never took piano lessons, but I taught myself the first movement of Moonlight Sonata and I love playing it. Um, anything by Tchaikovsky in orchestra when I'm playing viola. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's those are the things that I, I love that. Yeah. What is the worst musical or career advice you've ever been given? Um, trusting people who think that only dead and elderly Germans are worth anything. I think that's fair. I think that, yeah, <laughs> that counts as pretty bad. Not that there's anything wrong with dead or elderly Germans. They're they no? some lovely music. I got obsessed with Heinrich Marschner when I was in college because I had was looking for a dead or elderly German to you know show my <laughs> that I belonged in the department. But right, and it's not that we stop playing their music, but just that there are uh, there's a whole lot more out there. Yes. Yeah. What's the best musical or career advice you can pass on to up and coming musicians? My advice is, do it if you love it, make it happen. Don't let other people talk you out of it. Don't let people tell you that you're not worthy of creating. Because if you have the creative spirit, you need to create. You need to, to follow it. 
Yes, absolutely. And then last question is what, what music are you listening to right now? What's a favorite album? Oh, well, I listen to a lot of stuff for, cause I teach um, random instruments to random people. Um, <laughs> I've been l listening to a lot of Metallica lately because uh, I have a student who's learning um, nothing else matters. And I just love that album. I think it's the black album. Anyway, I can't remember the name of the album. I think it's, I think it's just called the black album. But I've been listening to a lot of Metallica, a um, fair amount of Epica, because I'm, I'm also in a symphonic metal band. Amazing. That's great. Um, well, listen, Mel, thanks for coming on Loud and Clear. Can you let our audience know where they can find you to follow you and keep up with all your wonderful projects? Well, when people prod me to do so, I have my website, www.malikamfitzu.com. That's M-E-L-I-K-A-M, as in Mary, F-I-T-Z-H-E-G-H, MalikaMFitzU.com. And we'll link that in the show notes. And I'm also on Twitter, Mel, at MelFitzU, um, on Instagram, at ComposerFitzU. I also have Patreon. Awesome. If you want to get scores from me monthly. <laughs> And there you have it. That is my interview with Malika M. Fitzhugh. I hope you enjoyed it. I will have links to all the references if you go to oamusicstudios.ca slash podcast. Make sure you go and give Malika a follow and let her know how much you enjoyed the show. Thank you to the Saskatoon Symphony Orchestra for sponsoring this podcast. Make sure you head over to saskatoonsymphony.org to purchase tickets for upcoming shows. And if you don't live in the Saskatoon area, you can watch these shows via concert stream by following the link at the top of the website. I'm your host, Olivia Adams. This is Loud and Clear, and you can find me at OA Music Studios on socials. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.